Okay, we're in Revelation chapter 13. Uh, turn your Bibles there. Revelation chapter 13. Now, I need to take here maybe about 10 minutes or more and, and lay some foundation. Uh, I've been gone, Karen and I were gone for a couple weeks, and then a couple weeks before that, I was building out of Revelation. It's really been about a month since we've actually been in our walk through the book. So I think it's just really important time for us to lay some new groundwork or reminder groundwork on what's going on. So first, I want to go through our five key images uh, I'm a very visual person. I remember things better visually than I do written down. And I think, honestly, most people are that way. So this is why I'm using different pictures. These don't necessarily all relate to each other, but they build out a whole. Picture number one is actually up on the screen. We are in the book of Revelation, and we are opening the door into seeing what God is going to be doing, uh, has done, uh, uh, and who God is. Ultimately, this is about Jesus Christ revealed. Know this, that when we study the book of Revelation, so many people, and I, I get it, I get it, you know, we want to talk about the timeline. What does God have in his timeline of things? But friends, it's ultimately not about a timeline. It's about the second person of the Trinity. And Revelation chapter one, verse one states that. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ. That means he is the source and the subject of the book. And so we are ultimately in all this learning about uh, our great Savior and Redeemer, Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ revealed. That's picture number one. Picture number two. Picture number two, the way I am doing this is in my favorite car, okay? We are doing a bus uh, ride together. It's, it's this idea of, and this is on purpose, it's kind of this idea of it's a first-timers bus tour together. That means that we are not doing an advanced class this is not a seminary group tour. This is not a tour for tour guides. This is a tour for first timers. And I say that because as a church, we're seven, seven and a half years old. We are a church that has never been, I've never taken us on purpose until now to apocalyptic literature. And so we're, we're, we're new in this. And so I want us to be honest about that and grab it in that way. We're going to experience it together. What we're doing is on a tour, we're letting it unfold. When we were in Scotland, we were on a three-day bus tour up in northern Scotland, Isle of Skye. And we went place by place by place. We didn't have a full show of the whole thing. We, we experienced it as we moved it along. And as we moved along, we learned more things about the Isle of Skye and what it is there and how things work. By the way, do you know there's five million people in Scotland and seven million sheep? Isn't that cool? I learned that on one of the stops somewhere along the way. Uh, that has nothing to do with our series, but that's okay. Uh, picture number three. Uh, here you have a picture of an airplane kit uh, um, laid out the pieces that are laid out. The idea of this is that we are laying out the pieces of the book of Revelation. We are not in assembly mode right now. We're just laying them out. We are not doing what would be called a systematic theology study of eschatology. We are not doing a Genesis to Revelation, uh, all, everything combined in, taking a look at what God says about what's in the future. We are in the book of Revelation right now. We are laying out its pieces. It's part of that whole. That's why I've kind of got the fuselage there marked out. It's part of the whole, but we're just doing the fuselage, if you will, on things. Picture number four, Picasso's painting. Guernica. Uh, here, this painting is all kinds of crazy imagery. It's a reminder to us that when we go to the book of Revelation, yes, there is crazy imagery in it, but within the book of the imagery, it's not about what you and I think that the images mean. It's about what the original author painter meant. So with Picasso's painting, it's not about what do you think that is, what do you think that is? It's ultimately the question is, is what did Picasso mean by that? And so what we're doing here in God's word is we're going to the book of Revelation and seeking to understand as much as we can about what did the original author, the original painter, what did God have to say in his word? And then our fifth picture, 
Uh, it kind of uh, uh, is important for us to uh, accomplish the other four, to see Jesus, to, to, to let the text unfold like on a bus tour, to lay out the pieces prior to assembly, to, to seek out what the original author and painter has to say. What I've asked us to do is to enter the book, and this is a very vulnerable thing, but I've asked that we enter the book as tour guide people, or as tourists in this together. I've asked as your tour guide that you take off some of your preferenced theological frameworks. In other words, don't go into the book of Revelation going like this, well, I'm a pre-tribber, I'm a post-tribber, I'm a mid-tribber. Listen, I'm just saying, take them off, let's let the text come. Let's just see what the text, in other words, my preferred theological frameworks do not shape the text. The text shapes my framework. And it's a vulnerable thing to kind of take those glasses off and to set them aside and to kind of let's let it lay out. And I will tell you personally, I've been working very, very hard to do that in this study so that we can allow the text. So that means if you're, uh, as I mentioned, if you're pre-trib or post-trib or pre-mill or uh, a-mill, just take them off for a while and let's just see what it says fresh and anew. If you're a preterist, idealist, historicist, futurist, or if you have a cyst, um, just, just take that off for a little while. Or if you're in a purely literal interpretation or symbolic or you think it's all a sham, I'm just even asking you to take that off. And let's just see what this has and let it unfold. Those are the five pictures. Well, I do want to bring a sixth. I'm actually not going to uh, get into it until next Sunday. Uh, but the sixth image, a scoreboard, the uh, uh, football is starting And uh, we'll bring it in, but I just want to let you know, in chapter 13, Satan puts his two baddest, fiercest beast dudes out on the football field, okay? Next week, we'll bring that together. Those are the five pictures, six coming next week. Now, let me do this. I want to do a review. Where have we come so far? So turn to Revelation chapter 1, if you would, please. I want to walk along the screen on this with you. Revelation chapter 1 with this as we move. Uh, uh, You see here up on the screen what is going to be something I'm going to be using likely here in the coming weeks ahead. And, And what it is on this side of the screen here, this is the beginning, essentially the first five books of Revelation, the chapters of Revelation. Then the center screen, and that's really setting the stage for the book. The center screen... Uh, is about seven seals, seven trumpets, seven bowls. Uh, We haven't gone through all those yet, but we're in the process of it. Then as you get to the end of the book, it's really about moving into eternity. So let me walk us through. Uh, uh, Revelation chapter one. We saw Jesus is the source and the subject, verse one. Really, really important. Hear me on this. In modern times, there's a number of people who are writing books, commentaries, uh, items on the book of Revelation and so forth, and they talk about it. I'm just noticing this terminology. Some are using this talk about like, the, these are human stories. These, these, and listen, friends, this is not a human story. John did not write this like a sci-fi kind of novel story. It comes from, it's sourced from the second person of the Trinity. And in chapter one, we saw that John is to write down what he sees and then to send it. John is not writing this up. John is recording what he sees. Jesus Christ is the source and the subject of it all. And he's going to be sending it to seven local churches. That's in chapters two through three. By the way, we saw in chapter one that it's an apocalyptic prophetic letter that's also, by the way, in a narrative form. It's a very unique letter. Chapter two and three, Jesus has some things to say to the seven local church. The resurrected, magnified, glorified Jesus Christ of Revelation chapter one has some things to say to seven local churches. We went on a quick ride through through those seven local churches. And Jesus had some things to say to those churches in Asia Minor, which is modern Turkey today. But he said back then, but they have application and implication for us today. And we went there. And then after that, chapters four and five, we moved into the throne room. Chapter four was about God the Father as the center of it all. And God the Father, remember that, is in the throne.
throne and the four living ones around and then the 24 presbyteros who, who are in thrones with, with uh, Stephanus crowns, victory crowns, who periodically in all of this is uh, giving glory to God and there's, remember, the rainbow around and lightning and thunder and we're in the throne room. Then chapter five, we are in the throne room and the lion lamb shows up. Uh, John uh, uh, tells about how he sees the Father, and in the right hand of the Father is a scroll, a scroll with seven seals on it rolled up, writing on the inside and the outside. That means there's tons of information on it. And John knows, they know that that scroll is talking about the things that God is going to do and put into effect later on, and yet it's sitting there in, the thr- in his hand, on the right hand on the throne, and, and they're saying, who is worthy to open the scroll? Who is worthy to take the scroll and pop the seals? And they do this look around the world. No one's worthy to open the scroll. No one's worthy to take it out of his hands. And John is weeping because if there's no one to open it, it's not going to go into effect. And yet John is told, John, don't weep. For the lion of the tribe of Judah is worthy. And then a couple verses later, John looks between or at the throne and there he sees the lamb. Isn't it interesting? Uh, Not the lion, but the lamb. The lamb that was slain. Because the lamb is the lion. The lion is the lamb. And there we are in chapter 5, setting the stage for it. Then we moved on and we come into the seven seals of chapter six and over in the beginning of chapter eight, the seven seals. And then after that, we've, we've touched on the seven trumpets, uh, chapters, end of chapter eight and nine, and then the seventh trumpet, the beginning of chapter 11. And we haven't gotten there yet, but we're gonna get the seven bowls. And you may say, Doug, those aren't bowls, those are pitchers. Yeah, I got it. But here's the thing, the text talks about how the bowls are poured out, and visually, that just reminds me more of something being poured out, so that's why it is, okay? Don't, don't get freaky on me. Okay, but we'll get there, we're not quite there yet, but also one of the things that takes place is in this, is in the, trum- the seals, the trumpets, the bowls, that's the main center of the book, of God's judgments being laid out. We'll talk more later on, just laying it out, but one of the things that's also interspersed in here are some pauses we've talked about. Some of these parenthetic pauses that take place. It's almost like we're telling it, uh, John's telling it, and then there's like a pause button. There's more information we wanna fill you in on and equip you with. And we see these on these ones. The first one over here uh, takes place in chapter seven. 144,000 are sealed and, and the great multitude. And then there's another pause be- right before the seventh trumpet uh, about the little, uh, I'm sorry, about the angel and the little scroll. Remember the angel uh, gives John this little scroll and tells him to eat it. And that's what we had there. And then the beginning, actually, of chapter 11 is the two witnesses. And, and then over here, and we're right in this section, I want for you to know, chapters 12 through 14, today chapter 13, chapter 12 was the dragon, the child, the woman, and the offspring. Uh, the dragon wages war against the child, but the child wins. Jesus Christ wins. So he doesn't stop. He goes after the woman, the one who gave birth to the child. I believe that that is Israel in it. And so he, he goes after that, and, but he loses in that as well. And then the text tells us he goes after the offspring. We'll see today. He goes after the ones who are the followers of Jesus Christ. By the way, that's you and I. We are in a war. If you remember after that, right before we left, I took two Sundays to talk about the war One of those Sundays was going to the beginning of Genesis and seeing Genesis 3.15 where the war got started and then going all the way to the end of the scriptures to see and and we stopped in some places and to see the war as a whole and then uh, two Sundays ago, three Sundays ago, we we parked in the book of Job because I wanted us to see the war lived out and this whole dynamic of the Godhead and Satan and how this goes and how it came after Job. Friends, know this, you and I are in a war. Life is not just about your job or your career or your kids or your home or is your house staying dry right now? We are in a war. Well, today, we're in chapter 13. We're gonna talk about the sea beast and the earth beast and we're right where we need to be. God, I pray as we dive into your word that you would show us more of who you are. 
Lord, you are in full control. There is no question about that. But Lord, I'm going to bet there are some folks here this morning with what's going on in life that genuinely and sincerely are actually struggling with that reality because life seems out of control. Lord, I would just pray, would you, would you just open our eyes to you? We, we, we need your help to see you. And God, I would pray especially for those who are hurting and those who just need this word this morning. God, do work here right now, please, would you? Rain down on us, Lord. Rain down. In the precious name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Bibles to chapter 13. You there? Revelation 13. Uh, I want to begin right at that end of chapter 12 where uh, uh, Pastor Eric had a, was reading, and it says this. And he stood on the sand of the sea. I want to remind you what's going on there. Let's actually go to the beginning of that verse, chapter 12, verse 17. It says, then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. He's at war. And if you are a follower of Christ, as we'll see here in a little bit, if your name is in the book, know this, he's after you. And by the way, it's not he's after you because you are so massively important and I am so massively important. As we talked a few Sundays ago, what he's reason he's going after you and I, the followers of Christ today, is because we bear the image of God. And he hates that. And so we are in the war zone of his war with God. And we are the collateral damage in his eyes. But thank the Lord that's not the case in the Lord's eyes. So the dragon lost the war and he's coming after. Notice again, I'll just say, it says, keep those who keep and hold to the testimony of Jesus. Let's keep going. All right, here we go. Chapter 13, verse one. And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with how many horns? 10. And how many heads? And with 10 diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its heads. Well, let's pause there. Let's talk about this. First, the beast. A beast. By the way, this is not some pet beast. This is not your cute little dog cat. This is not your gerbil. This is a beast. The Greek word is therion. Uh, the word comes out of this idea is, is used even in the Septuagint, which is the, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, back referring to Joseph in, when his brothers wanted to kill him. His brothers were talking about how would they contrive this statement? What would they say? And, and in that, the Septuagint, they, they use this word. They say, I know, we'll tell dad that a Therion came along and ripped him up and devoured him. Okay, that's the idea, something vicious and something ferocious and something horrible because they're making this story up, make it the worst you can. And that's the word that they use then. By the way, it's used 10 times in Daniel chapter seven. Uh, we're not doing a systematic theology study. We're not doing a whole study of the book of end times through the entire Bible here. But I want to tell you this, Daniel seven is all over this chapter. And it talks about beasts in there. Ten times the word is used. It talks about four savage empire beasts. A lion, a bear, and a leopard. Keep that in the back of your mind here for just a second. A lion, a bear, and a leopard. By the way, in Revelation, the word therion, beast, is used 40 times. Here in chapter 13, this is, I think really helps you understand what's going on. It's used 40 times in the book of Revelation. And here, this is the second time it's used. That means... There's 38 more times it's going to be used. The topic of the beast is a big topic from here for a while. That's the beast. 
And the beast we see in the text, it rises out of the sea. By the way, uh, we just think computer graphics. Are you already, I hope you're kind of getting this image in your head. By the way, it doesn't just pop out. It doesn't fly out. It doesn't jump out. It literally is this idea of like, it rises out. It's coming out. It's this idea that the dragon has placed his feet on the sand in the sea and he's there, that Satan, and all of a sudden there's this call of this this beast, this therion, and this therion is over. I keep kind of getting the idea. It's like, hey, I'm putting myself out on the table. Okay, you got the idea with it? And it's all these seven heads and things coming out and the water dripping off and this fear is like, Wah! that's what's going on here. Oh my word, I'm glad we don't do video. Um, but he's rising out. And by the way, part of this is important because it's almost like it's described like its head comes out and then its torso and its body. And get the image of what's taking place here, Satan and, and this beast. And it's rising out of the sea. This is a sea beast, as I'm calling it. That's important. Back in the ancient times, the sea was the word that was used. It was the idea that carried, that was where the chaos of humanity reigned. Coming out of the chaos of mankind. By the way, apocalyptically, we see in Revelation chapter 11, as well as we're not there yet, Revelation 17, we'll see that this same sea beast rises out of the abyss. That's out of hell, we'll just state it. So here is this dragon on, on the land and a foot in the sea, and he calls up, summons up, boom, and it begins to come out and up and rah, kind of a thing, and it's coming, and it's like it comes from the abyss, and it comes out of mankind. By the way, I do think this is talking about one yet to come who will be an individual. It's not just an empire. I think there's an empire reality to it. But, but I do think, and I'm laying some things out on the table there, but I do think that this is a person and there's reasons in the text why it just can't be an empire alone. It, it has to have more, it, even the, the use of the terminology is he, not they. This beast rising out of the sea, Mount says the sea was the ancient world uh, seen as the reservoir of chaos of mankind and it rises out of all of that. And it has 10 horns. And those 10 horns have 10 diadems. Interesting. The lamb in chapter five has horns. Has seven horns. Here this one has 10. This sea beast uh, has 10 diadems, not Stephanus crowns, diadem crowns. It means they have rulership and authority, but they don't have victory. Remember the, the presbyterists around the throne, chapter, uh, chapter four? They're the ones who have Stephanus crowns in the Greek. Those are victory crowns. This guy doesn't have victory crown, but he does have power. He has some rulership. The, uh, the horns are the central trait of the beast. The heads are the central trait of the dragon. He has seven heads, though. Note on it, they have blasphemous names on the heads. Blasphemy. It's speaking against. It, it carries this idea of despising, taunting, uh, cursing, speaking against. And, and here we will continue to see, because this dude is, is going on for a while here. He, he, claims deri uh, he claims divine prerogatives. He claims he's God, essentially. Worship me. And notice that, that, that in this, these blasphemous names, they aren't hidden behind something. They're plastered straight out, tattooed, if you will, right on the front of its head. It's this idea of this is who it is. White notes, blasphemy is one of the most serious of all spiritual inequities in the Old Testament. And I think this is important. Blasphemy eradicates the fundamental creator-creature distinction, he says. Do you hear that? By the way, it's quiet. Isn't that awesome? But, but do you hear what he's saying here? This is this idea of what's going on is there is a creator and, and a created. And what's happening here with the dragon and with the beast is the created are putting themselves in the seat of the creator. And that's blasphemy. 
And by the way, before we get too harsh and like, yeah, that's so horrible, may I remind us that uh, we can do the same blasphemy quite easily. When we kind of are like, I don't like what God says, I don't like what God does, I'm, I'm out on that, and we kind of inch our way over into his seat and the creature becomes a bit like the seat of the creator. But this is a trait of this sea beast. He blasphemes. By the way, the, the, the movement of the terminology has this present active indicative idea. He doesn't just once, it's all the time, all the time. He's a blasphemer continuously. He's arrogant and he's about self-deification. Doug, can we get into more about who this guy is and, and the, or who all the debates about it? And I'm like, no, 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 no. Uh, no. Let, let, me, let me say this. Daniel 7 through 11 talks about this. Uh, 2 Thessalonians 2 pours into this. Matthew, uh, Matthew 24, Mark 13, Revelation 17, we'll get there. All of those are important things, but I want to say this. We're just laying out the pieces, okay? We're just laying out some pieces right now. We're not trying to assembling it all together, sight by sight, laying it out. So what do we have so far, verse one? We have a beast. We have a beast rising up out of the sea. It has 10 horns with 10 crowns on those horns. That's kind of funky. And seven heads with blasphemous names on them. Verse two. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear's and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to the dragon and to it, the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. So that now we're getting to the torso. The, the sea beast is rising out and John begins uh, assigning these animal attributes to this. Why would John be doing this? Because Daniel 7 talks about it. And you can go home and do some study on it. But Daniel 7 talks about it. Remember, I made reference that, that it talks about these exact traits. And here he says that there's, it's a beast like a leopard. It's not a leopard, but it's like a leopard. It's, a leopard is uh, swift and sleek, and yet it has stunning destruction. It's like you want to go pet it, and then it's like all over. It's like a leopard. Notice that here he says it's, it has feet like a bear's. It's not a bear, and not all of it looks like a bear just its feet, a bear's feet, ferocious strength and power in their feet, great stability too. Its mouth is like a lion, a lion's mouth. Man, when you think of lion's roar, roar and the majesty and the, the power and the strength, and yet a mouth that can just tear and rip and devour and eat up. A leopard, a bear, a lion, all of those are talked about in Daniel 7 regarding empires. Again, we're going to be putting some of these things another day, another time. But these are attributes. I'll just say this. This sea beast is a compilation of, a composite make of the prior kingdoms of the past. Everything from the past is coming into full fruition. There has never been any time like what we're about to see in here that has ever occurred on the face of the earth, and I can show you why in just a minute. But one's coming. Verse three. And notice, by the way, verse two, it's power and throne and authority comes from the dragon. It doesn't have its own, but it's given. And who is the dragon? Satan. Verse three. On one of its heads, it seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed. And the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. So we have one of its seven heads has a mortal wound on it, but that mortal wound is healed. By the way, I don't have time to go into all the details of it, but what's really talking, one of the heads has a mortal wound, but the death, but I'm sorry, but the beast is killed. The entire beast dies. It's not just like one little head goes limp for a while. It's, it's one head is a mortal wound, it dies. And then by the way, what happens? It's healed. 
It comes to life. Is this sounding like anyone to you? In fact, I would lay out on the table, it sounds like three people. Two of them were in Revelation chapter 11. Remember Revelation chapter 11, the two witnesses. They were there for 1260 days, prophesying to the world. And then they are killed and they're laid there for a period of time, dead in the streets. And then they are given life back. By the way, more than that, it reminds me of one very, very significant person in redemptive history. That's the second person of the Trinity who, who, was, who was dealt a lethal blow, if you will, or actually Genesis 3.15, a bruise. Why? Why was it only a bruise? Because he came back to life. What's happening here, by the way? What's happening here is the sea beast is giving the impression that he is, hmm, a lookalike Jesus, might we say? Let's let that unfold out here. So the sea beast, by the way, who we are told in chapter 11 killed the two witnesses, is also shown as the whole world is in his hands. That sounds like a song. The whole world is following this dude. By the way, the whole world means all of those that are not in Christ. The world is following. They're marveling at him. They are following him. One of the reasons that I said earlier that there's never been a time in history like this is because there has never been a time in history like that where the whole world has marveled and followed and bowed down. There have been ones that have been like that. There have been kind of shadows of that, foretastes of that, lookalikes like that, but never like this. There's a time when the world will marvel and worship this sea beast the text is telling us. Verse four, and they worship the dragon. Why would they worship the dragon? They're worshiping the beast, aren't they? Well, well, for he had given his authority to the beast and they worship the beast. Worshiping the beast is worshiping the dragon. Worshiping the beast is ultimately worshiping Satan. Worshiping Jesus Christ is worshiping the father, right? And by the way, there are only two choices. There is no other redeemer, savior, gospel than Jesus Christ. All others fit into this category. All others are sourced out of, tied to, laid out, sourced by the dragon. There is only one way and one name that saves I wish it were more. I wish it were all. But the text shapes our theology. Verse four, and they worshiped the dragon. They'd given his authority. And they worshiped the beast saying, who is like the beast? Who can fight against it? Friends, that is so Jeremiah 10, 6, so Psalm 86, 8, where they say the same thing of God. Who is like the Lord? And yet here people are saying the same thing to this beast. Well, let's go on. Let's read verses uh, five through 10. Verse five, and the beast was given a mouth, uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and it was allowed to exercise authority. Pause. I want for you to start underlying if you have something to mark with. If you're not used to writing in your Bible, get used to writing in it. And it was the beast was given, underline that. The beast was given a mouth uttering haughty, blasphemous words, and it, underline this, was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. It opens its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. Also, underline this, was allowed. Was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority, underline this, was given it. Authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation and all who dwell on earth who worship it. Everyone whose name has not been uh, written in the, before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. If anyone has an ear to hear, let him hear. Verse 10, if anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. 
If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword must he be slain. Let's talk on these for a few here. These verses here scream the sovereignty of God. God is involved in a, just like we talked out of uh, the book of Job. Notice God is sovereignly allowing the dragon and the beast to exist to exercise authority, to blaspheme God. He's allowing uh, them to blaspheme his place. He's allowing them to blaspheme his people. God is allowing them to war on his own people. God is allowing them to conquer his own people. God is allowing them to have authority over every tribe, people, and nation. God is allowing them to take captive people. God is allowing them to kill people. God is allowing all of that. God is sovereign over this. God in this never relinquishes his full sovereignty. He he never gives unlimited license. He allows. Lewis Foster says, the devil devises his schemes, but God sets his bounds. Let me try and say it this way. God is like this. Here's the boundaries. Go ahead. Be who you want to be within my boundaries. That's what he's doing here in the text. You you have these boundaries. You, You can play out who you are in those boundaries. And in fact, I'm going to give you time. I'm going to give you authority. And I'm even going to give you opportunity for you to play out who you are. And you can play out who you are within my parameters. And with that, I say this, by the way. Remember chapter 11? God graciously gave two witnesses for 1,260 days, three and a half years. God gave witnesses and 144,000 who are declaring the gospel to the entire world. God gave them for three and a half years in his sovereignty. They get killed. And this dude is a part of all of that. How these fit, I'm not putting the pieces together yet. But in all this, God is a allowing for his word to be declared. God is allowing for Satan to have his day. People are allowed to choose. So Doug, how do you then work that out when it says in verse eight that everyone's name who is saved has been written in the book of life of the lamb before the foundation of the world? Can we talk election predestination? No. Here's why. It's an interesting topic and I encourage you to work it through. Go to Romans chapter one through 10, study it. Go to Ephesians chapter one through three, study it. Especially chapters two verses one through 10 in Ephesians. Study it, talk it, work it through. But know this, a sovereign God is involved in the redeeming of all people. And yet in that, all people are called to come to Christ. How do you know if your name is in the book? Come to Christ. How do you know if your name is in the book? Repent, come to Christ, and show the fruit of, of, of endurance in, in your life in Christ. That, that's how you know. And friends, you want to have God. Listen, oh man, I just want to go there, but I can't with time. Mankind wants to be able to be our own boss. We want to plow our own path, be our own person. And yet know this, if that was the case, no one would ever be saved. And yet in it, God has us to call out unto his name to be saved. Doug, are you saying it's both? Absolutely I am. Because that's what the text says. That's what the text says. Hey, how do you know if your name is in the book? Come to Christ. Fall before him. Repent of your sin. And receive Jesus Christ as your savior. And you will be saved. And by the way, the fact that you did that shows that your name was in the book. And all the whole context is a sovereignty of God here. So I can't go any further than that. I'm just gonna leave it there, okay? I'm gonna leave it there. All of this is working. God is sovereignly working through time, even through this beast. And here, let's go to the end of uh, verse 10. Verse 10, here is a call. Out of this whole chapter, here is the call. 
Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. That's the call. That's what I want for you to walk out of chapter 13 with. Hey, saints, there is a call for you and I. Endure in faith. That's it. And by the way, the whole setting is kind of like this. The whole setting is this idea. It sounds like that the dragon and the sea beast have won. After all, the whole world's following him. It's kind of like he's, um, uh, it's, it's like the score's seven to six. I'm playing with numbers. Seven to six, there's 42 seconds left. And, and, and the dragon and the beast are on the six yard line. In fact, the 6.66 yard line. <laughs> and in that, it looks like they're gonna win. And it's like, there's no hope, there's no hope. And yet in it, what's going on is it's like, this, this is, there's this call, no, 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 no. It looks like he's gonna win, but know this, endure in faith because he's gonna lose. He's gonna lose. Because the blood of the lamb is won. And we can talk all we want about the beast's horns and his heads and his crowns and his names and his leopardness and his bareness and his lionness and his given powerness and throneness and authorityness and is the marveling going on and the following and the worship and the allowed words and the allowed months and the allowed blasphemy. And we can talk about the allowed saint warring and the allowed saint conquering and the allowed saint captivity and the, the, the allowed in the book of life. And we can talk about the allowed martyrdom and the allowed world domination and the allowed sovereign allowing. We can talk about all of those. But if we miss this, we miss the call. That in the hell that's being unleashed, God's people are called to endure in faith. Because he's one. Endurance, hupomene, means to remain in, to remain under, remain in it. Hang there in it. Hold there, faith. Hold on to that assured hope. That validated confidence of Hebrews 11. Faith is believing the word of God and acting upon it no matter how I feel, knowing that God promises a good result. Hold on to that. Faith is believing the word of God and acting upon it no matter how I feel knowing that God promises a good result. Hang on to that and endure with that again and again and again. And oh, it's hard, isn't it? Isn't it? <clears throat> and sometimes you just want to give up. But instead, it's to be like this. Let the sea beast from the abyss do his worst. Let them all have their hour. Let them blaspheme, let them mock, let them hate. But I know, we know, our Savior is the revelation one one. The resurrected, glorified, magnified Jesus Christ one. He is the revelation five one. He is the one who's worthy to open the scroll. He is the one who's taking care of it. And he is the one who's bringing it all to an end. Oh God! We hang on to that. And we endure in that. And it's hard, isn't it? First Peter 2. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he was suffered, he did not threaten but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. 1 Peter 4, verse 14, if you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Romans 8. Who shall separate us? 
from the love of Christ. Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No! In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us for I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And Paul, Philippians 3, I want to know Christ and the fellowship of sharing in his suffering. Have your way, beast. But we hold on to the one who has kicked your rear end. Glory to God. I'm out of time. Kleenex. Oops, sorry. So I'm just going to read to the end. Then I saw another beast rising out of the earth, an earth beast. It had two horns like a lamb. It looked like a lamb, but it spoke like a dragon. That tells you a lot. Verse 12, it exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose mortal wound was healed. He's a worship leader. Sorry, Pastor Nick. But he's a worship leader. He's pointing everyone to the first beast who, by the way, in other texts of scripture is called the Antichrist. Verse 13, It performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of people. That's not new. Satan is so uncreative. He can't even come up with his own gigs. He's just got to copy the Godhead and the two witnesses. He's just a fake. 14, and by the signs that it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on the earth, telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. And it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. Also, it causes all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead, so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark, that is the name of the beast or the number of its name. Verse 18, this calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is 666. I'm out of time. Let me say this though. Please do not go home and search the internet for whose name is 666. The, t- the, the discussion there, go search it out, I don't think it's talking about us today. I think it is talking about to those people in this time. God will give wisdom to understand that this one is who this is. We have been, had people who have said Nero is 666 years and centuries ago, and yet they had to do that by switching even the terminology and the letters of his name around. We've had people say that President Reagan is it, President Obama is it. I don't know. We've had people say Barney is probably it, whether it's Barney Fife or Purple Barney. Just know this God is sovereign over all. And he's got it figured out. Endurance and faith. As I finish that, I have to make this statement. I think when we hear the call to endurance and faith, the natural response is, oh man, I gotta man it up more. I've gotta muscle it up more. And I've just gotta be more. And may I say, that sounds very man-centered. 
It's kind of like I have to pick myself up on my bootstraps for the 5,000th time. And I'm just going to say this today. As opposed to you trying to pick up your bootstraps and being saved by grace and now trying to carry it out by works, I'm calling you just to go face down before the Lord and say, I can't. God, I can't come to you on my own and I can't remain in you on my own and I can't endure on my own and I can't even faith on my own. God, I need your help. Please don't go out the door going, I've got to be more. No, 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 be less. And just God help. Oh, God help us, right? God help us endure and help us in faith. Well, let's go face down. Lord, I would just pray, anyone in this room this morning who... uh, Maybe they don't know you. Maybe they think they know you. God, I would beg of you to rain down on them the ability to understand. God, would the Spirit of God do a work in their heart, a clarity work in their heart, to know that they are without the Redeemer, if that's the case, Lord. I just pray, God, I just ask that in love. So the clarity would come and then they would come. And the mercy that you offer with arms wide open and that they would come to know you as their Savior and endure in you. God, I would pray for those of us who are in Christ that, oh God, would you help us hold on? I'm sure there are some in this room this morning who are just They just may be at their end. I would just pray for your holding grace. I would pray for the grace gift of faith. God, I would ask, would you just rain down on us? We are a feeble, weak, proud people. And we are in a battle with beings that are way bigger than us. But you have won. You have conquered. And we desperately need your help and your mercy.